Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In The Heresy of Jacob Frank, From Jewish Messianism to Esoteric Myth, published by Oxford University Press in 2022, Jay Michelson explores the religious philosophy of the mercurial 18th century figure Jacob Frank, who, in the wake of false messiah Shabtai Tzvi, led the largest mass apostasy in Jewish history. Jay Michelson is an affiliated assistant professor at Chicago Theological Seminary and a visiting scholar at the Center for LGBTQ and Gender Studies in Religion. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Jay. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So uh, could you please start off by telling us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Sure. So I um, uh, am kind of a part-time academic. I do a lot of other work as well. Uh, in my scholarly work, I have I have a PhD from Hebrew University in Jewish thought, and I specialized in Jewish mysticism. So for a while, I was studying Kabbalah and other and Hasidut, Hasidism as well, and um, ultimately decided you know that this was some the research I wanted to do uh, almost by accident. Uh, I had intended to write a dissertation on a Hasidic master who you know, Rav Aaron Astaris Elsa, but but it actually went a different direction. And uh, I just couldn't really crystallize a question about him. And meanwhile, Jacob Frank seduced me to write heresy instead of Hasidism. Although, as I try to show in the book, that maybe the two aren't so so distant after all. Yes, hopefully we'll get to that as well. Uh, so to start off, in the beginning of your book, you introduce the readers to two Jacob Franks. Who are these two individuals? So I... I used that terminology to distinguish between the historical Jacob Frank, who was a real person and lived from uh, 1726 to 1791, from this creation of Jacob Frank uh, in his autobiographical utterances. In a sense, the work that we have of Jacob Frank is not unlike some of the early Hasidic texts, which are records of what the teacher said. Uh, it's an, it's clearly, it was delivered as an oral uh, set of oral teachings uh, written down by Frank's followers. There's some controversy actually about the original language and the conditions of how it was written down. But it's obvious from reading uh, the text that these are oral teachings that were then collected. And I showed in, in my book, uh, actually, just in chronological order. Uh, scholars have puzzled over the order of, uh, of the book or the organization of the book because it seems so haphazard. Uh, in fact, it's just chronological. Uh, the majority of it was, uh, was dictated in 1784. And in that text, Jacob Frank presents himself as a wild figure uh, with all kinds of fantastic stories, some of which would seem to be negative, you know, stories of him being violent or being vulgar, for example. But he's telling these stories to describe his mission, what he, how he came to be. Uh, so generally, he's trying to, if not quite positive, because he depicts himself as kind of, I'm just an idiot. I'm a holy fool. I'm the one chosen by God. But you know, I'm actually stupid. Don't listen to me. Uh, but that's his self-presentation, right? He's presenting himself as this divine messenger. And, you know, part of the challenge in understanding Jacob Frank is to distinguish between a historical figure and the literary character. In fact, some listeners might be familiar with the masterpiece, uh, The Books of Jacob uh, by Olga Tokarczuk, the Polish writer, which was the English translation just appeared uh, early in 2022. In that book, which I do think is brilliant and which sort of evokes the world that Frank came from really in, a, in a, an amazing, detailed way, she does conflate uh, Frank's stories about himself with the character that she's describing, Jacob Frank. Now, of course, she's writing a novel. She's not trying to write a history, so it's not like that's irresponsible. But you get these strange instances where Frank commits outrageous acts or beats people up or commits very problematic sexual acts. And and in the novel, that's kind of depicted as part of his life. 
you know, I tried to show in the book that, again, not criticizing the novel, but from a matter of scholarship, from a matter of history, this is Frank's self-presentation. Uh, and it's not, so that's why I think it's helpful to think of two Jacob Franks, one of whom is in fact vulgar and uh, often simplistic uh, and sometimes violent. But the other is the writer of that character who actually betrays, despite his protestations to the contrary, a deep Kabbalistic knowledge, a deep understanding of Sabbatean, heretical Kabbalah as well. And, you know, he is the writer creating the character. Right. And so speaking of the the historical Jacob Frank, the, the man, what do we know about Frank's biography? So it's also limited because, again, we have to kind of draw. There are a few other Frankist texts which seem to be a bit more reliable in terms of narrating what happened. Um, there are some mentions of him in other literature, but some of that literature was written by the sect's opponents. So there, too, we don't really know what's actually true. What seems to be true <laughs> is that uh, Frank was born into a family of Sabbatean believers, Ma'aminim. And maybe it's worth sort of backing up. 100 years, or I guess 50, 60 years. So in the mid 17th century, uh, in the 1660s, uh, a man named Shabtai Tzvi, who had been kind of, you know, one of the people you might see on the street saying the end of world of the world is nigh, uh, kind of connected with a scholar Kabbalist prophet, uh, and created almost by accident, a mass movement. Uh, it's estimated at the high end, up to one third of European Jews believed that Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah, that he was going to seize the crown from uh, the Sultan because he was active in the Ottoman Empire and restore Jewish sovereignty to the land of Israel. Um, it was never quite the mass movement that some accounts suggest, but it still was quite a rupture uh, in, in rabbinic authority and was a real crisis. Many communities in the Jewish world were taken over by Sabbateans and the non-Sabbateans were persecuted. Um, that movement came to an end in 1666 when the Sultan gave Shabtai Tzvi the choice to convert or die, and he chose to convert. Um, that was the end of the mass movement, but the movement itself did not actually disappear. So a number of close followers of Shabtai Tzvi converted to Islam as he did outwardly while secretly continuing to practice this kind of heretical messianic Judaism. Uh, these became known as the Dernma or the converts. And also, this sounds like I'm making it up, but they, they remained a, a durable sect for 350 years, uh, up until the 20th century, uh, kind of living in a sort of open secret uh, or a glass closet, if you will, uh, in Ottoman society. In the, Jew in the Ashkenazic Jewish world, many Jews who had been believers in Shabtai Tzvi outwardly repudiated uh, the false messiah, but secretly continued to believe. And this kind of heresy continued for almost 100 years, uh, not approved of by the rabbinic establishment, but not entirely squashed out either. And Jacob Frank was born into one of these families of believers, uh, and he married into a prominent family of, of believers. His, his wife, uh, Chaya, came from a, um, uh, came from a, pro a prominent family. So he was kind of in that world and made his way to Salonika, which uh, which was the sort of headquarters of the Dernma and the headquarters of the Sabbatean movement. Uh, he entered some kind of a trance or had some kind of some unusual experience happen to him, uh, was believed to be, if not the Messiah, then certainly the next charismatic leader, perhaps a reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi. And that's when his career really begins. Uh, so in the 1750s, uh, he returns uh, north uh, to Poland and is one of many sectarian leaders at the time. And there were several. Uh, but his sect was allegedly discovered or maybe accused of conducting a, a heretical ritual in which a teenage girl was placed in the center of a circle of dancers, male and female. Uh, and she, uh, she um, was topless and the men and women danced around and kissed her on her breasts uh, as an incarnation of the Shekhinah, the divine feminine, and as a kind of parody of how even pious Jews kiss the Torah. Uh, so that was the, the divine feminine and the Torah, and, but embodied and incarnated into the, in this person, an actual person. Whether this actually took place or not uh, is not clear, um, but it almost doesn't matter because it was believed to have taken place. And that led to another, we could spend the whole time just talking about this two or three year period, but a, a remarkable uh, series of events which culminated, uh, as you mentioned earlier, in 1759 with the largest mass apostasy in Jewish history 
probably two to 3,000 uh, Jews converted en masse uh, to Christianity under duress. Uh, the rabbis had actually played the role that the Ottoman Sultan had, had played 100 years earlier with Shabtai Tzvi. They, this was too much. This was a bridge too far. And this policy of quasi-toleration of these heretical movements came to an end, a very firm and decisive end. The rabbis reported the sect to the Christian authorities, which is clearly against halakha, against Jewish law. Uh, and the Christian authorities sort of dealt with this as a heresy. And you could be a, you could be a Jew in Catholic Poland, or you could be a Catholic, but you couldn't be none of the above. And the sect initially actually persuaded the church authorities that there should be a third option, a contra-Talmudist Jews is how they described themselves. And they colluded, not under Frank's leadership, but under a leadership of another figure in the sect, uh, they colluded in horrible anti-Semitic persecution of the rabbinic Jews. There was a campaign of burning of the Talmud that, that came with the assistance of the sect, not actual the physical acts, but of reporting that the Talmud did call for the use of Christian blood and all of the sort of anti-Semitic stereotypes that I guess are still with us today in some form. Um, so the, the, this massive conflict took place. Ultimately, the sect lost uh, and again was, was forced to convert or die. And so they converted en masse. That could be a good place to pause. In a certain way, that's where the story begins, uh, though, uh, because after that period, that sect was that uh, conversion was also not uh, sincere. And for the remaining... Um, let's see, uh, 33 years of Frank's life, uh, he led a really hard to believe, bizarre, amazing existence. For, he was imprisoned for 12 years uh, by the Polish authorities when the, when the conversion was discovered to be insincere. And following his release, he became a kind of underworld figure uh, in late 18th century Europe, uh, involved in Freemasonry and Western esoteric societies and the stuff of conspiracy theories. One of Frank's leading disciples played a, a bit part in the French Revolution, uh, mostly on behalf of the Habsburg Empire and sort of running guns to the French revolutionaries. Frank himself created what I try to show in the book, and that's the main subject of the book, was a, a, a really startlingly original theology, uh, which we can, which I'm sure we'll talk about in just a moment. And this interpretation of Frank that I you know, try to articulate it. in the book is different from some of the earlier scholarly understandings, understandings of Frank, that he was purely kind of an opportunist and kind of a con artist and just saying whatever he needed to say to keep his sect uh, loyal and supporting him. I certainly don't want to suggest that Frank was a good guy. Uh, he was not. Uh, he had, you know, numerous ethical transgressions. Um, but that's not my, you know, that's, that's not my role as a scholar to, you know, pass judgment one way or the other. Uh, what I I do think is clearly the case is that what he ended up teaching was in in this kind of syncretic hybrid form of multiple different traditions was quite unusual and even prefigured uh, a lot of what became dominant in in Jewish uh, history maybe a hundred or two hundred years later. Right. So we're going to get into to to um, uh, uh, Jacob Frank's theology in just a moment. But I'm curious. You mentioned that you know he had followers, and some of the followers went off to do various uh, things. H how many followers is it estimated that he had uh, in total? So there were two sets of followers. Um, at the in the immediate close circle, it was very very small. It was like you know fifty to hundred people, and they were living in a uh, kind of a borrowed castle that Frank had. He had connections, and so he was able to kind of you know all of these noble noblemen had extra real estate lying around. So Frank was able for his sect to kind of occupy one of these unused estates. Um, but the larger circle was larger, uh, probably again a few thousand. Not all of the Frankists convert. Frankists converted uh, in 1759. Many sort of pretended to return to the fold, uh, but again were seeking. And they had they had experience with that, right? I mean, they had already been their families had already been believers in Shabtai Tzvi for almost a hundred years, and so this was just you know for many of Frank's followers, they saw him as the latest you know, version of Shabtai Tzvi. I show in the book that the theology that Frank developed was actually quite different and opposed to Shabtai Tzvi, but that was for the, that, that very small inner circle. Uh, for the much wider circle, there were large communities in Prague uh, and in Warsaw um, and smaller uh, communities elsewhere in, in the area. Um, and that's now we're talking, we're probably talking about several thousand people, which, you know, at the end of the 18th century was not nothing. Um, the scandal 
of Frank in 1759 was much larger than the reality. Uh, he, he was a contemporary of the Baal Shem Tov, the, the founder of Hasidism. If you ask kind of a random you know, Jew on the street in 1759, none of them would have heard of the Baal Shem Tov, but they would have all heard of Jacob Frank, uh, you know, the most evil man in, in Europe, basically. And uh, his fame, of course, faded into, into total obscurity. Uh, but at the time, he was really quite notorious. Right. And so speaking of the theology, um, you talk a lot about this idea of antinomianism. What is antinomianism and in what sense did Frank's thought embrace it? So antinomianism refers to the view that it is religiously or ethically preferable to disobey a law. So a religious law or otherwise. So, for example, Paul in Christianity, you know, is is uh, is an antinomian. Uh, he says quite clearly that not only do the laws of kashrut, the dietary laws, and the laws of other of you know sort of ritual observance from the Hebrew Bible, not only are they irrelevant, it's actually wrong to continue to observe these laws because that means you've misunderstood what the coming of Christ really means. Um, so he preaches a kind of antinomianism. The term itself actually was coined much later uh, in reference to Martin Luther, uh, who was accused of being antinomian and who then wrote a text called Against the Antinomians about other people who were more antinomian than he was. So, you know, within Christianity, there was a lot of debate as to, so is the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament to be totally thrown out? Is it partly true? Is it limited? What's, what's its purpose? Eventually that kind of congealed into doctrine. But, you know, it, it's periodically contested. It's contested even today. And it was certainly contested again and again and in Luther's time as well. And a lot of it revolves around this question of what the role of the religious law is. You know, a famous kind of antinomianism, you could think about Gandhi or, or Martin Luther King, uh, who say that it's, it's when there's an unjust law, it's just to disobey it, right? So it's ethically and maybe even religiously uh, mandated to disobey the law. Uh, and that's the view of antinomianism within a Jewish context. You know, we see it in, in the Sabbatean movement and in, in the Frankist movement uh, for various different reasons. So sometimes uh, there is a sort of mystical reason that uh, there is there's a Sabbatean doctrine that the that all the goodness of the world are kind of in shells of evil. And so we penetrate the, the world, the evil, in order to liberate the spark of goodness that's within. Frank's view is actually, and this surprised me in my own research, is actually surprisingly modern. Uh, even rationalistic. Uh, he basically says religion doesn't work. It's a bunch of promises. The righteous are going to be rewarded and the wicked are going to be punished. There's no such thing as the afterlife. Frank is a materialist. There's like this world. He, he says at one point, I don't, I don't care what God does in heaven, but what God does here on earth, right? Like that's the proof in the pudding. He has a story, again, almost certainly false, but a story that he tells of himself uh, going to a synagogue called the Congregation of the Prophet Elijah. And he asks the shamas, who's kind of the guy in charge of the synagogue, like, why is it called the Congregation of the Prophet Elijah? And the shamas tells this lovely story that one day somebody came in and they saw the prophet Elijah sitting on the chair. Every synagogue has a chair, the chair of Elijah that's used for circumcisions and other, other things. Um, and Frank said, well, okay, I, I want to see the prophet Elijah right now. And Shamus said, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and, uh, and Frank actually beat him up with the assent of the authority. Somebody he calls the cops and, the, and Frank says, what? They're, they're liars. He said that there's the prophet Elijah. There is no prophet Elijah. And I'm going to beat him up. And the, prophet, and the cops, the police, you know, say, good, beat him up. Um, so again, not exactly uh, ethical behavior on Frank's part, but it illustrates this kind of very basic proto-rationalist criticism based on theodicy, right? Theodicy, the, the idea that, uh, of how there is justice in the world or, or not. Um, and because Frank denies, you know, anything like a heaven or hell or an afterlife or things like that, he's faced with what all of us are faced with, that in fact, the righteous are not rewarded in this world. Uh, and it doesn't seem to matter. You know, you, you observe the law, you don't observe the law, you know, I, I know not to t make it about you and about me, but, you know, you grew up in a, in a, in a traditional environment in which, you know, the fear of punishment or of transgression is extremely strong. Right. And I grew up in the conservative movement where it's a little weaker, but still there was the idea that, you know, you, you have to do this, you have to keep the Sabbath in this particular way, or you can't. And it's funny when you, in, in particular around the dietary laws, when I talk with non-Jewish friends or non-observant friends, they can't believe the amount of angst that I went through over like a cheeseburger. I still don't eat cheeseburgers, but that's another story. But, but you know, the idea that you could get really, really wrapped up 
in something like a shrimp cocktail or whatever to somebody who has no orientation in that way strikes them as absurd right but if you grew up in a traditional jewish environment it's not absurd at all i mean it's it's foundational how could you possibly eat a shrimp cocktail so that dissonance is kind of at the heart of frankist antinomianism and his view is eat the shrimp cocktail. You're here to live, right? God wants you. It's not an atheism. It's not based on agnosticism. It's based on this idea that God wants you to thrive and to live and to have sensual pleasure and to have power in the world and to have sexual pleasure. And any of these laws that, uh, these religious laws that, that require repression, Frank takes a Kabbalistic idea of the foreign woman, kind of a misogynistic idea, but the idea that there's the temptress in the Kabbalah, the temptress is the, this, this, this figure of the foreign woman tempts men into sexual transgression. Frank actually turns it on its head and says, this is the person who, this is the figure who tempts men into sexual repression. So, right. Repression is from the other side. Repression is the yoke that we have to overthrow. And, like I said, you know, when I was working on this, the initial research for this, you know, 15 years ago, that was very surprising to see, you know, this was right before the reform movement. Some of the Frankists in Prague later became some of the leaders of the Jewish enlightenment and of Jewish reform. But um, this still predated that by, you know, 40, 50 years. Uh, and it's also couched in a very strange, it's not German reform rationalism. It's not Mendelssohn. It's not, you know, a kind of philosophical um, reflection. It's couched in myth. Uh, in this very clear, you know, theistic idea that God wants you to thrive. And as we'll talk about in a minute, in sort of bizarre esoteric myths of, you know, the pursuit of immortality and things like that. So right. that is, that's my five minute intro to antinomianism, which maybe lasted eight minutes. <laughs> that was, that was just perfect. That was really great. Speaking of, of interpretations and reinterpretations of, of, of myths, of stories. So um, what do the biblical figures of Jacob and Esau represent for Jacob Frank? So it's a great uh, site for kind of building out this myth that I've just been talking about. So in normative Judaism, Jacob's obviously the hero, right? He becomes Israel. He's the progenitor of the, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. He's like the, the patriarch of, uh, of the Jewish people. Um, Esau, his older twin brother, is kind of is the enemy, right? Uh, Esau later becomes also associated with Rome and through that with Christianity. So Esau is kind of shorthand when you see a rabbi and, you know, in, in European rabbi talking about Esau, he's talking not about Esau, biblical Esau, Esau, but, uh, but about Christianity. And Esau is the other, right? Uh, Jacob is also described in these kind of very interesting ways in the Bible. It's interesting from a gendered perspective. His his the way his gender is presented is very non-normative, right? He's kind of the he's more like a woman uh, in, the, in the gendered language of the Bible, right? He stays in the tents. Esau goes out hunting. He's not warlike. Esau's the hunter and the and the warmonger and all that kind of stuff. He's kind of smooth skinned and he has a light, a high voice. Esau is you know hairy and has a deep voice. So it's it's interesting that right in that that's on the level of the the shot level we say the the, the surface level of the biblical text, um, and then that carries forward right. The self conception of the Jews is kind of well like the Christians maybe have all of the temporal power but we have spiritual power, or we are you know in some way chosen and something like that. Um, Frank kind of turns this on its head, not rejecting Jacob for Esau, but saying that the two have to be brought together and that Jacob actually made these mistakes, right? He tried to draw, draw divisions between uh, the, his true faith and idolatry, for example. And what Jacob Frank's mission was going to do was to was to rep repair the mistakes that Jacob uh, in the Bible had made. Uh, he would embrace Esau. He would seize temporal power. Uh, he would uh, not be kind of constrained by this notion of, you know, of um, spiritual power that isn't actually in the world. Uh, and so Esau represents the kind of masculine Christianity with a lot of power that Frank wants to integrate into his new religion, uh, which he calls Das, which maybe is a play on Das, Dat, which means Hebrew word for religion, or possibly also the word uh, Da'at for knowledge. I think it means actually a combination of those, and it's about a Gnostic religion. In this new religion, he would combine Jacob and Esau uh, and have the strength of, world, of worldly power, while also the sort of secret wisdom of what it means. Right. And what role does joy and merriment play in Frank's thinking? 
So it is funny here to also to juxtapose Frank with the contemporary Hasidim, right? So he has a very um, familiar critique of a certain kind of rabbinic Judaism, pre-Hasidic rabbinic Judaism, that it's mourning over the temple and that it's crying and that it's filled with sorrow and with, with fasting and with observances which don't bring joy. But Frank says, when I when 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 my help comes, when my when you know when we when we attain our goals, we're gonna have great banquets and we're going to have concerts and we're going to have a lot, you know, we're going to have beautiful carriages and we're going to have wealth and we're going to have all these things. It's funny, kind of as a, um, to amuse myself, I went through, cause you know, I went, I went section by section through these roughly 2000 oral teachings, some of which are one or two sentences and some of which are quite long. And, you know, the amount of time, I think Frank, I forget what the number is, you know, it's like 15 times he mentions fruit jam. He really likes fruit jam. He mentions meat a lot of times, like he's very worldly and, and carnal, you know, he knows what he likes. And that was in contrast with a notion that is still around today again, that the sensual world is either a distraction or a place of sin or in some way not the path of religion uh, and that religion should renounce in some ways. And again, it's hard to kind of take away some of the lenses of the last 200 years. So this is before reform, before Hasidism, before... And, you know, we see some of the same stuff from from both from reformers and from Hasidim, two very different groups, you know, uh, a little bit after Frank's time, uh, complaining that, again, you know, there should be more joy uh, in Jewish practice. And um, that comes from many sources. It does not just come from Sabbateanism and Frankism, but Sabbateanism and Frankism is one of the sources uh, of that doctrine. Right. And so clearly Frank was... Uh really distinct and maybe unique in terms of his thinking and and his his uh, incorporation of his own biography into his theology and and his his um his worldview um how did the the physical site the location of frank's imprisonment you mentioned that he was imprisoned for 12 years how did the site of his imprisonment itself become incorporated into his theology so uh, maybe two answers to that question. So first, I guess as a preface, this is yet another unbelievable aspect of the actual Frank biography. You know, if, if you get imprisoned, you get imprisoned, right? But he was actually imprisoned at the shrine of Shanstakova, which is the national, a national shrine, now the national shrine of Poland, and the home of a painting uh, known as the Black Virgin of Shanstakova. So this is still active today. I went a few years ago. Gosh, now it's almost 15 years ago because I'm getting up there. But I went uh, yeah, 14 years ago. And it's truly an amazing pilgrimage site. You know, I love I love weird religion. I love like religious observances. And, I, you know, I've, I've danced at Bar Yochai's tomb and in and, and, uh, Israel. And I've I've paraded around the Black Virgin of Shostakova. I don't know how many people have done both of those things, but I'd. <laughs> and I've definitely I've been to the site of the Bodhi tree in India. Like I could go on and on. Anyway, this is this is um, truly an amazing site. The the uh, the belief, which is very sincere, the, is that the painting itself it's not it's a painting of the Virgin Mary, of course. But the the veneration isn't of the Virgin Mary who's reflected in the painting. It's a re- veneration of the painting of the portrait, which is funny. Again, in my Jewish education, you know, I was taught like you know, what idolatry was. And it was like, well, how stupid are the people who think it's, you know, and that's not generally true as a matter of like what biblical religions really thought was going on with their statues, but it is kind of true about, about this painting. And I'm not denigrating that this belief, I find it truly amazing and fascinating that even today in 21st century, there are people making a, make pilgrimages to this shrine. Um, and it's an amazing thing to behold. And I can only imagine what it was like to kind of be imprisoned there, you know, 250 years ago. Um, Frank came to believe that the Christians possessed the divine feminine, the Shekhinah, and didn't know who she was. And the Jews understood who she was, but didn't possess her. And so his mission, again, was to unite these two. And he developed an entire theology around a figure called the Pana, the Maiden, who is kind of this perpetual divine feminine goddess figure who incarnates again and again, incarnates as the biblical Esther, incarnates as women across history, 
incarnates in Jacob Frank's daughter, Eve Frank. Um, and it's kind of the principle of embodied sensuality. So she is sexual liberation for the Sabbateans and also for Frank. Sexual liberation was one of the signs of the Messianic age. One of the first things that would happen is back to antinomianism. The Messiah was going to annul a number of the laws of the Torah that had existed before. Um, and Shabtai Tzvi actually did that uh, when he announced himself as the Messiah. And so encoded in, or not even encoded, but built into to Sabbatean messianism was the idea that in the world to come, uh, a lot of the laws governing all of life would be, uh, would be annulled, including those uh, around sexuality. And so for Frank, this was embodied in this figure, in, uh, in the figure of uh, the Pana, the maiden. I guess I, I want to point out that that's definitely not how any Polish Catholics understand the Black Virgin of Shostakova. Uh, you know, she's much more of a traditional kind of, she's a miracle worker and she has the power to heal. And it is an amazing story about this painting too. I mean, it, it's allegedly, you know, was painted of the Virgin Mary directly, like on a table and, you know, in, you know and so it would have been almost 2000 years old. Whatever that myth is, it has been around for at least a thousand years, and it's been shot at. It was stabbed at one point when somebody invaded Poland. You know, Poland kind of gets invaded a lot and crossing armies, and it's a very it's it's a history filled with with suffering. Um, and yet, this portrait, this this painting, has endured, and it really is a symbol. Now, if you go see, or if you, even if you just Google online, you know, there are these gold um, uh, kind of like. Uh, elaborations on the painting where she's been stabbed in the past. And uh, it is kind of this, it's definitely not anything to do with how Frank understood it, but he just so happened <laughs> to be imprisoned uh, in this location where something very close to goddess worship, you know, is alive and well at his time and now uh, at ours as well. One other thing just to add maybe about Shansakova is that for Frank, the power of that place came from its physical location as well. Uh, he had a number of, of uh, teachings where he says that it's it's on top of a cave filled with gold or that there are all these magical beings who attend it. And he says something similar about Jerusalem, about the temple in Jerusalem, that uh, the it's the physical location. And this was true, not just to Frank, but there were figures, I think it's, I think it's Ibn Ezra, um, and, you know, there are medieval figures as well who say that part of the why was the temple located at this particular spot in Jerusalem? Because of astrology, because this is a particularly like a, a specifically um, uh, uh, fortuitous location. And, you know, you see that, too, in contemporary kind of magic or paganism and things like that, where there's, you know, ley lines and energy lines and specific places have specific material uh, significance. And I bring that out because it's not. You know, I think we would say, well, it was located here. A shrine was located here for whatever reason, and now it's sacred because of the shrine is there. Uh, for Frank, it was, you know, things are where they are for very specific reasons that are material in nature. Right. Speaking of kind of strange um, um, mystical beliefs, who is Big Brother, and what is the nature of the world he occupies? So Frankism, or whatever Frank teaches, clearly evolved over time. At the early phase, uh, you know, in the 1750s, none of what we're about to talk about was present uh, in Frankist doctrine. It was clearly a kind of hybrid of Sabbateanism with then an, probably an opportunistic embrace of some elements of Christianity. Um, you know, by the time of the dictation of this text uh, called the, the Collection of the Words of the Lord uh, in 1784, that was very late in the Frankist career. So the imprisonment was 1759 to 72, and then he'd already had 12 years out uh, teaching in the later later part of his career, which I briefly alluded to before. At that time, in that late phase of Frankism, there was a, the, a whole revival in what, uh, or eruption really, of what became known as Western esotericism. So a lot of the stuff which we vaguely associate with, maybe with conspiracy theories, like, you know, the Freemasons or the Illuminati, or there were historical movements. Uh, and Frank and other Sabbateans, um, remarkably, were part of it. Uh, so uh, you know, Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Ibishitz, who is well regarded even today in some Orthodox circles, was a secret Sabbatean. Probably just scandalized a couple of your listeners by revealing that. It's not, it's not my revelation. It's, it's clear that from scholarship that's true. Uh, his son converted to Christianity, uh, and his son actually becomes active in these kind of Western esoteric uh, societies, secret societies. And these were, you know, when we see. These kind of, the idea of a secret society, maybe we think about superstition or weird doctrines, and I will talk about that in just a moment because you asked about the big brother, but they also were 
kind of semi-radical political connectors, basically. It's basically they were business networks. And of course, this was a time when Jews were excluded from most uh, networks of commerce through, through Christianity. And these kind of societies became a kind of underground way of um, doing commerce and politics and power. And and they did come with some bizarre esoteric beliefs. Uh, the, so Frank preaches this whole. So I've already I've indicated that his his teaching is materialistic, right? What happens on Earth, but then <laughs> he adds on this whole idea of a whole parallel part of the universe, which he calls the world behind the screen. And on the other side of the world behind the screen, so our world clearly is filled with evil, with death, with disease. And Frank says in a very gnostic way, this proves that our world was not was not created by the good God. Uh, he takes a Zoharic idea of these three kind of guardians who take care of the world and says they're the bad guys and they're responsible for our world, which is filled with death and which is filled with disease and suffering. On the other side of the screen is a world without death. And our role now as the Frankist sect, you know, the intersect, the 25 people in his close circle and, and uh, some more, you know, in his immediate close circle, our role, it's kind of displacing messianism from a collective activity which all of us are going to engage in restoration of jewish sovereignty to a personal quest for immortality uh, similar to contemporaneous alchemical quests so the big brother is jacob frank's counterpart in the world behind the screen in the world behind the screen everything is great there's no death there's abundance and but the big brother wants wants frank and his sect to attain this kind of uh perfection uh of the human being and Again, this seems, uh, I think you mentioned, you know, mentioned maybe before we started, you know, Jacob Frank kind of contains multitudes. There seems to be very little connection uh, between this Western esoteric myth and the antinomian messianism, which we talked about. I tried to include that in the subtitle of the book, that there was this kind of journey from one to the other. Um, and yet it is also not as distant from us as we may think. So Mormonism uh, also grew out of Freemasonry and Western esotericism. And a lot of the esoteric beliefs of the Church of Latter-day Saints uh, are these same beliefs that it is, it's possible to live forever, uh, that pious Mormons will in some way, whether they get their own planets elsewhere in the universe or in some way live forever, uh, and that that's the real goal is the pursuit of immortality. Uh, so as strange as it may seem, uh, it's also a belief that's still held by you know millions of people today. Right. And uh, how do uh, Frank's myths relate to the psychologist Leo, Leon Festinger's uh, classic study, uh, When Prophecy Fails? So uh, I'm always happy to talk about this subject. Uh, it's fine. I think you're the first time I've talked about the book a bunch of times. We haven't gotten to Festinger in any of the other conversations. Well, I, I have to admit, I have a, a small, um, uh, a, a soft spot for Festinger myself because of my own <laughs> upbringing. <laughs> right. So when the Messiah dies, what happens? Yeah. Yes. So, it's a... <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it'll be familiar. You, sh you, you could fill out the story here. I don't need to even tell this. You tell it from firsthand knowledge. Um, yeah, Fessinger studied His initial study was of a UFO cult. It's then been replicated on many other contexts as well. And his original thesis, you know, as it, it's, it's now uh, 60 years old, so it's been revised many times. It's not like... Uh, it's not he was 100% right. But what he noted was that when, when prophecy fails, which is the title of the book, the, this classic study, um, generally the larger group does tend to drop away, but the, the, the core like doubles down. And uh, he talked about familiar term to now for us, uh, cognitive dissonance, that the pain of cognitive dissonance is greater than the seeming contradiction of taking on some new belief. So again, from Chabad Hasidism, Rebbe's announced as the Messiah, the Rebbe dies, this is a crisis. And it almost doesn't, the more preposterous the belief to justify what just took place, the better. So as you know, but maybe listeners don't, so maybe the Rebbe's still alive, or he's in some kind of suspended animation. And the Rebbe is the, the spiritual leader of the Hasidic sect known as Chabad Lubavitch, which is uh, headquartered in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, uh, who and the the Rebbe died in 1994, and then this caused a big problem for the Lubavitch community because they most, if not all, of its members had believed before his death that he was the actual Messiah, Jewish Messiah, who would 
you know, redeem the world. So what happens when he dies? Yeah, right. sure. Well summarized, right? And, you know, what's fascinating, too, with a Chabad example is, is you know, Crown Heights is part of a Christian society, right? So there's a, there's a sort of, even if there's not a detailed familiarity with the teachings of Christianity, there's an understanding that Jesus also died, right? He was supposed to be the Messiah. And there's been a teaching now for 2,000 years that he's going to come back, right? That he'll come back to life. And so astonishingly to some religious studies scholars, a variation on that belief gets gets adopted by a Hasidic sect, which, which you would think would that would be the last possible you know, option uh, would be to take on a belief that resembles something that, that uh, Christianity believes, but that's one of the options that's there. So the whole Sabbatean movement is an example of that. Shabtai Tzvi converted or died. So the large uh, the large part of the movement disappears in 1666, but the faithful, the Dernma in uh, in the Ottoman Empire and uh, the Mamminim, the other believers uh, in Europe, um, came up with various explanations for why this happened. You know, a classic one is, well, we weren't faithful enough or we weren't quite, quite ready. I've seen that also about the, in the Chabad case, right? So this was a, he was a potential Messiah, but we weren't ready. So we have to recommit ourselves to prepare for whatever the next, you know, iteration of Messi of the Messiah is going to be. Um, and this happens again and again and again. It's interesting in UFO cults. It also happened, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, a large sect uh, here in the United States, had predicted the end of the world. And I, I think it's 1973. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, and there was sort of a crisis of well, why didn't it happen? And and again, the, there again, it was some variation of a well, we, we weren't ready. We failed in our mission. We weren't uh, sufficiently faithful. Um, this happens in new religious movements as well. And it happens in Frankism as well. So it's clear that early Frankism was more worldly uh, in its goals. Uh, it seems during those disputations in the 1750s that the goal was to obtain some kind of territorial autonomy within Poland, which Poland was much larger than it is now, within Poland. And that would be a territory for non Talmudic Jews, uh, with Frank, of course, leading and wielding tempor temporal power. So that's a very worldly goal. I wouldn't, it's, it's, I question even in the book, I question whether it's even a messianic goal. I mean, it's kind of a political goal in a certain way. Of course, what the difference, what's the difference between political and messianic, whatever, but it's a, you know, it's, that's the goal, uh, that clearly fails. And so Frank invents a different goal. Actually, this was all about me getting to uh, encounter the maiden in Shanstakhova. She's the gateway to the other world. Now we're going to uh, learn how to live forever. Uh, in you know, and it's this very detailed stage. So, so uh, the baptism of the sect was always part of the plan. Clearly, not the case. But in Frank's 1784 edition of the teaching, right? So that was that was to then enter Edom, Edom, uh, the same as Esau, Christianity, and that was going to be the gateway to Das to this new religion. And so this whole wild uh, esoteric myth that Frank develops is, in a way, kind of that doubling down that Festinger talks about, uh, that when prophecy fails, it's not the, the, the adherents of the philosophy don't, or the prophecy rather don't say, well, I guess I was wrong about that one. Now I'm going to do something else. They find a way to maintain their belief, uh, even despite the, the, the contrary evidence. Right. Speaking of the Messiah, according to Frank's apocalypticism, was he himself the Messiah or some other figure? So Frank was depicted himself a bit like kind of John the Baptist in the Christian uh, context, or Mashiach ben Yosef in the Jewish Kabbalistic concept uh, context, the Messiah, the son of Joseph, who would announce the real Messiah. So Frank was not did not say he was the Messiah, which is contrary to what roughly a hundred percent of people who have heard of Frank would say. Uh, but he did say he would herald this period. Uh, he would ring about the Messiah was going to be the maiden. Uh, incarnated perhaps in Frank's daughter, but it would be the it would be the rule of the maiden, and she would and and there are different versions. You know, as soon as Frank dies, the sect fa uh, in 17, uh, 1791, the uh, the sect faces a, a crisis, and uh, some of his followers promulgate these texts allegedly written by Frank. I don't necessarily think they are because the style is so different, but with a very traditional. Uh, apocalyptic message. There's going to be a war. It's going to be, you know, everything's going to be, it's maybe Jews versus Christians. Maybe it's going to be Christians versus Muslims with the Jews caught in the center. And there was a lot of apocalyptic speculation about a war between Christian Europe and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, this was sort of one variety of that. So we better get ready. And and this is like kind of like the rap, the 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 tribulations before the rapture. They didn't use that language, of course. Uh, this is, this is going to be the birth pangs of the Messiah in the traditional Jewish language. 
Frank during his life, he did say things like that. Um, but the sort of standard prophet prophecy of, you know, in, of, uh, upcoming war and then the Messiah is going to appear, um, you know, as soon as Frank dies, he gets kind of assimilated into existing Sabbatean teaching and the parts of his teaching that were original um, are mostly discarded. And the text, the words of the Lord was spoken just to those that inner inner circle uh, of disciples. So not the wider communities uh, in Warsaw and in Prague. And they regarded Franken in different ways, you know, in many different ways, some as the, as the Messiah or as the heir to this, to Shabtai Tzvi or as preparing the way for Shabtai Tzvi's return or any number of other permutations. Right. And you mentioned that, that, um, that from his, uh, um, his writings, it's clear that Frank, um, you know, uh, was well-versed in Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. Um, what exactly is the relationship between Frank's own thought and traditional Kabbalah? So it's funny, I'll answer in a kind of uh, personal way. You know, when I started researching in this text, I kept waiting for the Kabbalistic treatise part. <laughs> and I was like, well, wait a minute, where's all the Kabbalah? This is Sabbatianism. Because Nathan of Gaza, the, pro the Shabtai Tzvi's prophet, who I mentioned before, very systematic Kabbalistic thinker uh, with all kinds of complicated doctrines of the Sphirot and the role of evil and the persona of the Messiah, how the Messiah could be divine, kind of the divine incarnate and so forth. Um, lots of stuff building on Lurianic Kabbalah. Some some listeners might be familiar with this idea of which I mentioned before, the shattering of the vessels. That there's uh, you know there's goodness contained within evil in the world. Um, there's basically none of that uh, in in Jacob Frank's teaching. He does have a few times where he clearly does know some fairly obscure Kabbalistic doctrines, um, but he also ridicules them. Uh, there's at one point he says the spherot, these 10 emanations of the divine are sometimes called houses. And Frank says, so I asked my teacher, where are the outhouses? <laughs> right. Where is it? And you know, that, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's typical for him. Right. And he doesn't, you know, for the, for him, Kabbalah's the Kabbalah and Sabbateanism are the examples of kind of spiritual religion. Right. So for, for the Sabbateans, the Messiah had already come. Like we're living in the Messianic era right now. It just doesn't look that way. For Frank, that's clearly in contra contradiction to every bit of available evidence, right? It seems ridiculous, right? The, what do you mean the Messiah came? We're still in servitude. We're still in bondage. Like we're not redeemed. And the Derma had their answers to that, of course. But they, but they, you know, from Frank's perspective, this whole notion that of belief in an unseen world or a messianic redemption that has happened, but which we can't perceive, that's just like more religion. That's just more nonsense. Right. And um, you, you mentioned you, uh, you touched on this a drop before, but could you say a little more about what 18th century uh, Western esotericism was about? And what connection did it have with Frankism? So Western esotericism, as it arises in the, in the 18th century, it has deeper roots, goes back several hundred years. And it says it goes back even further, thousands of years to ancient Egypt and the secret knowledge that's passed down. Um, it's, you know, it's not a codified movement. So I'll discuss what scholars I've, have identified as like the key characteristics of it. But you know, there are multiple different sects and lodges and, and writers and teachers. And so it's not like there's no catechism uh, of Western esotericism to tell us what's in, what's out. But it roughly believes, it roughly describes to some idea of correspondences between, and this is in the Kabbalah as well, between us, our experience, microcosm and macrocosm, uh, some notion that the world operates according to secret laws, which are basically mechanistic in nature. Uh, they're the, one of the radical aspects of Western esotericism is in a way it displaces traditional theism, right? So the world operates the way it does. We know this for now. Everybody believes this way, right? We, because of science, we understand, yeah, the world operates according to basic laws and, you know, Maybe there's more chaos than we, we thought for a while, but basically the world, you know, there's gravity and there's electromagnetism and so forth. In a way, those ideas, not, not those exact ideas, but that kind of scientific understanding of the world is present in Western esotericism as well. So you could even go back to that example I mentioned before about why the temple was located on this particular hill in Jerusalem. So it could be because God chose this hill, which is what the Bible clearly says. God chose the hill. Could be random. Could be, you know, it was... Uh, 
a, a historical materialist might point out that that mountain is surrounded by higher mountains, so it could be well defended from, you know, okay, that's one, one account. Another account is that there's something about that physical location. Um, that's a more esoteric, typical esoteric account. Um, Western esotericism also overlaps with Gnosticism, uh, which again is this notion that the world as it appears, it is, is not really the deepest level of reality and there is, it's possible to get secret knowledge. And so a lot of the heroes of Western esotericism and Gnosticism are these kind of magical figures, uh, King Solomon, Queen of Sheba. These are figures who appear over and over and over again in Frank's teachings. Um, you would think that like, right, that King Solomon and, and Balaam, the prophet are the leading figures in the Hebrew Bible. You know, they get a lot more play than Moses does. For example, Moses, what did he do? He brought the law. That's not the, that's not the good stuff, uh, right? The good stuff is the magic and, and, uh, and, and all of that kind of power. So these are some of the preoccupations uh, with Western esotericism, and it's alive and well today. Uh, Western esotericism directly, not directly, but through a chain of of, of uh, intermediaries influenced the new age with its kind of its embrace of astrology or of, again, of kind of, uh, you know, esoteric secrets that came from lost civilizations, whether it's the ancient Greeks or the ancient Egyptians or Atlantis or what have you, that there were these pre-biblical uh, philosophical teachings um in fact one of the you know the core uh core western esoteric texts uh is the, sort of the the writings of um hermes trismegistus that it's this idea of this ancient figure who kind of figured out all of the science of the world and that's kind of the truth that religion only partly heal, uh, gestures at and also sometimes conceals. So a lot of this really fit with Frank's pre-existing notions, right? That religion is false, but there's something going, there's something there that's true <laughs> underneath all of this confusion. Um, and in late Frankism, that became associated with these, again, doctrines. Frank even says at one point, we can't rely on Shabtai Tzvi anymore uh, or his follower. We're going to have to rely on Freemasonry. He says it explicitly. Right. And... Um... You you mentioned this uh, uh, or alluded to this uh, earlier, but um, in what way does Frankism anticipate later Jewish movements? Um, and uh, for example, the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, which comes sometime later, it seems like these would be very, very different since the Haskalah focused on kind of uh, a, a rationalism and a rationalist take on, on religion and life. And Clearly, Frankism is steeped in this esoteric thought and myths and and uh, really uh, seemingly uh, kind of bizarre and 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 um, opaque ideas. Sure. Yeah. So in the last chapter of the book, I kind of talk about these um, three ways in which Frank prefigured these later developments. And I try to be very careful and explicit in this chapter that I'm not claiming that Frank uh, caused these developments or even significantly influenced them. There are limited cases of, of historical influence. And I talk about those in the book and we can go into that in a bit, but primarily, uh, my claim is that sort of Frank was ahead of his time in a way and prefigured views and beliefs, which a majority of non-Orthodox Jews. And in fact, arguably a majority of just of, of non-Orthodox believers of, of any religion now hold. So we talked about the antinomianism earlier, the idea that, uh, you know, among non-traditional religionists, the idea that God really rewards the righteous in this world and punishes the wicked in this world, that's not a very widely held belief, right? There may be good reasons to maintain religious observance, but that's not one of them, right? That promise is not, that's in, you know, the book of Deuteronomy, that doesn't seem to be true, right? And so Frank said that the reformers pointed that out, the 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 Haskalah pointed out, the spiritual but not religious of today uh, would would agree with that. So there were, I'll just say, you know, in in the case of the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, uh, I mentioned already the Prague Frankists, which were just a few families, uh, did then become some of the leading Moschelium. Uh, but we now have, thanks to Ada Rappaport Alpert uh, and other scholars, a fairly detailed understanding of how these different how different ideologies influ influenced that community. So Gershom Sholem had the idea that Frankism really caused the uh the Jewish enlightenment for two in two ways. First by destabilizing rabbinic authority and and also by kind of uh yeah just questioning some of these orthodoxies. Um that's mostly not true. 
there is some there is some of that. It was he was you know the Frankist heritage of these families was part of the kind of mix of influences, but the predominant reason was contact with Christianity, right? It was contact with European philosophy uh, and contact with you know with with uh, Western European uh, communities, you know, in Germany in particular, that uh, had present day Germany in particular that had uh, more exposure to Western philosophy and rationalist philosophy. So there's a limited historical connection, but there is this kind of prefiguring and this critique of religious belief and religious doctrine that again, you know, if, among non-Orthodox practitioners, not just again of Judaism, but of, of Western religion in general, is probably shared by a large majority uh, of the of those people. The second, and again, with this pattern of a limited historical influence, uh, but then a wider kind of phenomenological anticipation, uh, is Hasidism. So there were Hasidic teachers who were aware of Jacob Frank. The Baal Shem Tov uh, was either present at the disputation or was closely, you know, was was deeply moved by it. Uh, and uh, Rabbi Nachman of Braslav, as I show in the book, a very influential Hasidic master, knew Frank's teachings surprisingly well and even plagiarized one of uh, one of the stories from Frank into his own stories. And the whole ethos of Rabbi Nachman's stories, which really, if, if anyone's familiar with them, are almost without parallel, uh, certainly in Jewish literature. They have a parallel in the Frankist in the Frankist stories. This kind of perplexing, you know, world in which things aren't quite right in a way, um, and in which the parable points to a, a very complicated moral teaching that doesn't see. It's not a simple, not a simplistic sort of form. So there's a, a and there is clearly a direct influence. Uh, Rabbi Nachman saw himself as correcting the the error of the Sabbatean movement embodied by Jacob Frank, um, since that was one movement from Rabbi Nachman's point of view. Um, and he copied several uh, direct, you know, Kabbalistic doctrines or uh, from Sabbateanism, uh, the way he understands the tikkun, the general notion of repair, what he was doing the tikkun for, right, which was sexual transgression, which was then associated with the Sabbateanism, with the Sabbatean movement. Um, but then more broadly, sort of speaking phenomenologically, I try to suggest that a lot of the, what we now understand as maybe Jewish spirituality or Hasidic spirituality, this notion that Messianism is not a historical event, but can be in a personal experience. The idea that you can experience the world to come through ecstatic, eroticized prayer. So in Sabbateanism, it was actual erotic ritual, like it was actual sexual ritual. Um, in Hasidism, it was symbolically eroticized, that there would be this idea of uh, sexual connection with the divine feminine, but in a spiritual way, right? In a symbolic way, not in a physical way. And the error of the Sabbateans was corporealizing this idea. Or one could say that the, that the Hasidic movement re-spiritualized some of this, trans, this uh, transformation of what we understand by uh, the term messianism or messianic experience. And that's Again, there is that historical connection that I mentioned before, but I think it's more interesting phenomenologically to kind of look at how this idea that you could have spiritual experience, which is really messianic eros experience, um, without a kind of traditional necessarily religious container, that shows up much later than Hasidism, right? That shows up in the 20th and then the 21st centuries uh, in kind of more contemporary movements of Jewish renewal and Jewish spirituality. The idea that it is possible to have that, whatever that mind state is, if it's, if we want to call it consciousness, Sholem uh, kind of used the term pneumatic, uh, you know, from the Greek term pneuma, which is breath which is just a translation of Ruach, right? He just was looking for a way to say the word spirituality, basically, right? So it sounds more scholarly when we say, say you know, pneumatic, pneumatic, that that's, the, that that's the, the term, but it's just, it's what we now understand to be spirituality, this idea that there would be a charismatic leader, that this charismatic leader could act on behalf of this kind of sect, that there would be um, what we now understand to be spiritual practice that would be devotional and very intense, that's messianism, right? That's messianism, sometimes domesticated, and then in the case of Chabad, re-undomesticated. Right, right. Um, okay, well, there's obviously so much more that we could talk about, but we're going to run out of time. So here's the last question. Um, what do you hope readers take away from your book? It's funny, I should have a ready answer to that question, but <laughs> I'm not sure I've been asked it before. Um you know, for me, this was, I'm not, again, as I mentioned earlier, and I have been 
ask this question, you know, like what's Frank's teaching for us today? I'm not really offering it. I've written other books on kind of constructive Jewish theology, Jewish spirituality. So I have what to say or what to teach about contemporary Jewish life. I'm not sure that's not what my intention is here with this project. Um, I do think that the Frank is such a creative figure that for me, it, it almost expands the boundary and of what we even think of as Jewish theology and Jewish writing. And it's just so fascinating to me. <laughs> you know, like I said earlier, I love weird religion, you know, and this is pretty weird. And I'm not saying weird in a bad way, right? I mean, I practice weird religion. So I, I, I'm into weird. Uh, there's a, a book by uh, Eric Davis called High Weirdness, which is like all about, you know, the weird and in, in, as a religious category. So I'm into it. I, and And for me, just the encounter, you know, you and I were talking before we started, when I first encountered Jacob Frank, you just don't know where it's going to go. You know, that at, unlike a traditional religious text, which at the end of the day is is going to affirm its religious uh, background and teachings and context and institutions with Frank, anything goes and it's off the rails. Look, the movement was a failure. It didn't institutionalize itself. It did not become something that was transmitted and that that endured. It was really a cult of personality. Eve, Eve Frank kind of tried to run the sect after Frank's death and basically ran it into the ground uh, with spending habits and stuff like that. And she just wasn't the charismatic figure that he was. So this was not a recipe for success, but it's just sort of a fascinating example of the transgression of boundaries uh, in a in a Jewish context that for me was incredibly alluring. There are aspects of Frankist teaching that I think are perhaps inspiring or could be recovered or could be you know grounds for a more contemporary. So there's a whole part we didn't really touch on around the liberation of sexuality that it's again complicated you know he gives he gives over a very liberatory teaching but then there are parts which are very repressive and which are very problematic and so it's not like again like oh let's all follow frank on this teaching let's not do that you know he does definitely was is not a, a paragon of uh, ethical behavior um but the, just the notion that somebody in the in the 18th century was teaching that sexual repression uh is like the demonic and sexual expression is the divine that's that's fun um, and I think there's a kind of um, what I found most inspiring about Frank's crazy teachings is its craziness that like there's such a, a kind of potential for creativity that's there that more so than any particular uh, doctrine or teaching or myth, just this in, that's just the innovation of it for me is uh, is really entrancing. Right. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. My pleasure. This was fun. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.